Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I'm almost certain I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. I've had to do some pretty serious thinking lately, which longtime listeners will know is something that I am opposed to. But when it must be done, it must. Now, like most people, I think, I like to keep a running list in my head of my top three names of American towns that sound as though they might be adorable euphemisms for diarrhea. For quite some time, that list has been set, and it hasn't been something that I've had to think about or question. But a recent trip north to the state of Washington changed all that. Until that fateful day, my list had been number one, Slick Poo, Idaho, number two, Brownsville, Oregon, followed by number three, Mud Butt, South Dakota. Now, I know it seems like Mud Butt would rank higher than that, and Ideally, it would, but it's technically spelled B-U-T-T-E, which means that I'm probably supposed to pronounce it Mud Butte, which, of course, I'm never going to do, but that does count against it in the points column. Now, as I said, that list had been static for quite some time, and it's one of the foundational pieces of knowledge that I'm able to base my worldview on. But I just drove through a town called Tumwater. As in tum-tum water, or tummy water, which I think is an adorable thing to call diarrhea, and I think that might have bumped mud butt off the list, which is crazy. I, I tell you, this whole situation is just so stressful, I'm, I'm worried I'm going to give myself a case of tum water. Anyway, this has been one of the worst intros in a very long time, so enough of this slick poo. Let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. And I hope you can appreciate the restraint that I employed in not saying, uh, doo-doo. Because it was kind of a lot. Which I have now just negated. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. If you're a Patreon donor, you'll know Howard's a sexist. Sorry for the slant rhyme. Let's get to the synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. Slant rhymes are always excused if you plug our Patreon page, which you've just done. Thank you so much. That's patreon.com slash ttwasteland for all your giving us money needs. Tales of the Teen Titans, number 56. August, 1985. Fearsome Five Minus One. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Chuck Patton, inked by Mike DiCarlo, lettered by Albert T. de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Lineup Wonder Girl, Starfire, Cyborg, Nightwing, Raven, Beast Boy, and Jericho. Previously in Tales of the Teen Titans. Following his aborted duel to the death with Deathstroke the Terminator, the superpowered assassin who uses 90% of his brain but only 50% of his eyeballs, Beast Boy decided to share a late breakfast with the murderous monocular mercenary. 
After feasting with his former foe, Gar decided that mindlessly pursuing deadly vengeance was probably a bad idea, and that maybe he should try not to be such an asshole all the time. Why, that's just so crazy it might work! While his emerald ally was contemplating the novel notion of not being awful, Vic Stone, aka Cyborg, was contemplating undergoing a transformation of his own. It seemed that the scientists at Star Lab suggested that the cybernetic super team submit to a surgery that would make his robot parts look a bit less robot-y. That sounded like a pretty sweet deal to the mostly molybdenum Marvel, who scheduled the procedure for later that week. And for the last ten issues or so, Raven has been worried that her demonic bad dad Trigon was going to crawl out of her bird-shaped soul tummy and eat the planet. The Azerathian empath attempted to avert this apocalypse by retreating to an uninhabited dimension filled with lightning and asymmetrical rock formations, and yelling about how sad and angry she was about her inability to emote. Gadzooks! How long will Beast Boy keep his resolution to refrain from being reprehensible? Will Vic continue his quest for less conspicuous computerized components? And if Raven's empathic powers are too difficult for her to control, even in an unpopulated private dimension, where will she go next in her attempt not to be overwhelmed by emotion? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... At least one issue, which I believe is a new record. Hooray. Yup. And the pediatric cancer ward of a hospital. Interesting choice. Raven is hanging out at her usual angsting spot in Stalagmite Central. She feels that any minute now, her evil piece-of-shit demon dad Trigon is going to take over her mind and use her to destroy reality. Which, don't get me wrong, would suck and all. But it would be a little more dramatic a moment if... My extra-dimensional demon dad will soon subsume my will and use me as a vessel to enact Armageddon! hadn't been Raven's resting state for the last 50 issues or so. After dramatically soliloquizing about her admittedly unfortunate paternal situation for about a page or so, Raven senses that if she does not soon intervene, a child on Earth may soon die. So, heedless of the potential risk, the avian-themed empath teleports to Earth. Okay, so she's been crying on that stalagmite for the better part of a year now, is this the first time a child's been in danger? Also, I know this has come up before, but it seems weird that a subset of empathy powers includes precognition and teleportation. Makes you wonder what other skills are part of the basic curriculum of the Azerathian educational system. TV and VCR repair? HVAC certification? At the hospital branch of Star Labs, Dr. Janae Clyburn is making her rounds. She checks in on an adorable little girl named Karen, who is about to undergo some tests for her unspecified but apparently debilitating and fatal disease. Karen has a doll named Glory that she takes with her everywhere. Here's the weird thing about Glory. There's nothing weird about Glory. It's just a doll. That makes the third doll in a row that has appeared in this comic that hasn't been evil, or magic, or haunted, or secret robot, or even filled with stolen jewels. What the fuck? That's gotta be some kind of a record. As Dr. Clyburn sends Karen and her suspiciously unsuspicious doll off for testing, a new patient arrives at the hospital. This patient arrives not in a conventional ambulance, but in a special radiation-proof armored car. 
Clyburn has misgivings about treating this individual, but it seems that the government has threatened to pull the hospital's funding if they are not admitted. It would appear that Janae's concerns are well-founded, because no sooner is the potential patient wheeled in in their enclosed radiation-proof gurney than a bunch of jerks dressed like red and orange Cobra commanders, the uh, hooded outfit, not the mirror mask one, burst into the room and start blasting high-tech stun guns at everyone. The autumnally outfitted assholes accidentally kill one of the guards who had a heart condition. Then, they grab the gurney and start making a break for it. But before they can conclude the kidnapping of their convalescent quarry, Raven shows up. When she sees that the flame-colored fuckwits have just killed a guy, Raven freaks the fuck out and starts force-blasting the careless criminals. She uses her empathic abilities to psychically force-feed them all the pain and suffering she has absorbed in the past few months. They hate that. She also starts throwing the word fools around, which is never a good sign for someone struggling with internal evilness. At one point, Raven uses her cloak to pick up a guy and toss him around, so I guess she must have audited in a class in magically making your clothes prehensile when she was at Azerath U. That specific power comes up often enough that it seems like there should be a name for it. Let's call it Sartoriomancy. At this point, Dr. Clyburn pipes up and is like, Hey, uh, Raven, you know that thing you're doing right now where you're blasting suffering directly into these bad guys? Well, would you mind not doing it anymore? Because all of us non-bad guys are getting kind of mentally walloped with the overflow right now, and that's not great for us. At first, the troubled Titan refuses to stop, because unburdening herself from these absorbed agonies feels too good. She seems to have gone mad with power, or should I say she's trigone mad with power. No, I almost certainly shouldn't say that, but unfortunately, I just did. Eventually, Raven snaps out of it and is like, Oh, snap! Sorry about that, evil bad dad who lives in my bird-shaped soul tummy and all. But the upside of being semi-demonically possessed right now is I have a fuck-ton of extra power, and not just sartoriomancy, although that is nice and a fun word to say. She uses her infernally augmented empath abilities to cure the entire intensive care ward of all of their diseases, and then teleports back to her whining stalagmite to pontificate about her paternal picadillo. When Clyburn and the rest of the hospital staff recover from their recent run-in with Raven, they find that those red and orange jerks have escaped and have taken the mysterious radioactive patient with them. Meanwhile, Jericho and his mother Adeline are returning from their recent adventure in the fictional, lazily named, racially insensitive caricature of a Middle Eastern country, Kyrak. Beast Boy greets them at the airport and is like, Hey Jericho, sorry I've been such an asshole to you, but I had breakfast with your evil dad, Deathstroke the Terminator, and he said you're cool, so I decided to learn sign language and stop being mean to you. Will you be my friend? Jericho signs, um, okay. And the two titans hop in a limo and head over to the titan tower. While Gar and Jericho bond over the fact that neither one of them thinks Jericho is evil, Cyborg is hanging out with his maybe girlfriend, Sarah Sims, and helping one of the students from her class for children with disabilities adjust to his new prosthetic leg. Sarah asks Vic, Are you sure you want to have that surgery that makes you look less robot-y? 
Vic is like, Yup. Well, fair enough. Across the river at the maximum security tri-state prison, doings are afoot. Are those doings nefarious? You bet they are. The architects of the amoral antics that are about to ensue are a quartet of criminals formerly known as the Fearsome Five, but since the group's founder, the terrible goatee-having shit-heel Dr. Light, has either retired or been kicked out of the group or is incarcerated, or some combination of the three, the title of this comic informs us that the collection of costumed crumbums is now known as The Fearsome Five Minus One, which is a little clunky. If only there were a single word that meant one less than five. Ah, who am I kidding? Even if such a hypothetical word did exist, it almost certainly wouldn't have the same alliterative properties that the word five does. So, fearsome five minus one it is. Maybe they can moonlight as a funky four plus one cover band. You know, if they find another member. Speaking of membership drives, that appears to be exactly what the Fearsome Five Minus One are up to. There's a prisoner who's incarcerated at Tri-State Prison that the fiendish foursome is intent on busting out. Since it's been a while, let's reacquaint ourselves with this confusingly named cadre of crooks. Simon with a P is the group's leader. He has ill-defined psychic abilities that allow him to do pretty much whatever he can think of. He also has a see-through skull and a shitty little ponytail. Shimmer is a red-haired lady who can turn stuff into other stuff. She wears a yellow bodysuit that has a bunch of holes cut out of it for no apparent reason. Mammoth is a big strong doofus. He looks and generally behaves kind of like the juggernaut, only without a magic helmet. He's also Shimmer's brother. Gizmo is a diminutive degenerate with the uncanny ability to turn piles of junk into complicated and often deadly machines. He likes to steal stuff. The prison guards, perhaps predictively, disapprove of the FFMO's jailbreaking scheme and attempt to intervene. That doesn't work out so great for them. Simon with a P thinks himself bulletproof, and then thinks that he'd like the guards' faces to melt off their heads. Shitty. Fortunately, before things get too melty, Nightwing, Starfire, and Wonder Girl show up and start to get their thwart on. Hooray! Starfire blasts Shimmer with her magic space fire. Nightwing kicks a distracted Simon with a pea in the chest, and Wonder Girl starts duking it out with Mammoth. So far, so good. Then Simon with a pea recovers and flings Nightwing into space. Nightwing hates that. The other Titans hate it too. Starfire zooms up to retrieve her suddenly buoyant boyfriend, but after catching up with the airborne aerialist, finds herself unable to do more than slow his ascent. Eventually, Wonder Girl manages to lasso the Cavarite-esque couple and tie them to a convenient steel stanchion until the effects of Simon with a P's mental directive begin to abate. By the time Dick stops floating, the FFMO has headed into the depths of the prison, leaving a trail of unconscious and injured prison guards in their wake. Nightwing begins to lead the trio of Titans in pursuit of their formidable foes, but Starfire has other plans. The Tamaranian princess is worried that Dick might be injured from his recent involuntary air travel and thinks that he should sit this one out. Over his protests, Coriander flies him over to a nearby rooftop and leaves him there while she and Donna head into the prison. He hates that. Hooray! Over at Star Labs Hospital, 
Dr. Clyburn is preparing to perform Cyborg's cosmetic de-robotification surgery, replacing his external robo-bits with flesh-like plastic. Before she begins, she informs Vic that if the surgery works, he won't be able to use his superpowers anymore because his new parts wouldn't be able to take the strain. Seems like maybe that should have come up before now. As he is about to succumb to the already administered anesthetic, Vic is like, Well, I, I like having superpowers, but, but sure, whatever, go for it. Then he passes out. Clyburn reckons that the conflicted mumblings of a heavily drugged patient is close enough to consent for her, so it's full steam ahead with the dangerous experimental surgery. Things start off well, but after a few minutes, Vic's heart starts going all wackadoo. As a team of doctors attempts to stabilize the titanium teen's condition and continue with the procedure, Sarah Sims and Vic's rad globetrotting grandparents wait nervously in the lobby. Back at Tri-State Prison, the FFMO have just reached the special holding cell of the prisoner they're attempting to free. The inmate in question is named Jinx, and she's being held in one of those liquid-filled tubes like the ones they stuffed Luke Skywalker in after his dad cut his hand off. The evildoers are about to take off with the Jinx-filled tube when Starfire and Wonder Girl bust in and start whooping on him. Hooray! The two titans quickly KO Mammoth, then Starfire turns her attention to Gizmo and bops the tiny Technomancer on the noodle, knocking him out. It's a good start for the good guys, but two on five minus one aren't great odds, and after a few minutes the numbers game catches up with them. Shimmer turns part of the floor into poisonous gas, and soon Starfire is down for the count. When Wonder Girl turns her attention to the matter-transmuting misfit, Shimmer transforms the water vapor surrounding the Amazonian teen into a solid wall, trapping Wonder Girl half inside it. Shimmer theorizes that after she and her contemptuous cohort depart, the wall will continue to solidify and will crush Donna to death as Starfire asphyxiates on the cloud of gas that surrounds her. The fearsome five minus one grab their jinx tube and vamoose, leaving the two dying titans behind. Oh no! If Donna dies, who will be there to tell the other Titans to get over it once a week has passed? And my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, reached too deeply into his pockets and subsequently fell into a pocket dimension, where I understand he has been standing on stalagmites and yelling about his feelings for quite some time now. Fortunately, due to the magic of telephonic communication, he is able to join us remotely. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing well, despite the complicated situation. Now, being from New England, I would assume the majority of you standing on a stalagmite and yelling about your feelings would just be you standing there and quietly saying, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's not even hard to balance on this cave thing. Nice. Well, yeah. good for you. So, how how are you doing? I am well. I'm enjoying uh, everything. It's a lovely cave. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, now, outside of the uh, literary conceit of you being in another dimension, uh, it is my understanding that if you weren't there, you would be in Italy. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> that is that is correct. Yeah, Rome. Nice. The Windy Apple, Rome. I think that's what the tourist literature says, but it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to tell. The Windy Tomato. <laughs> oh. So, what do you think about this comic? Um, I enjoyed it, despite not... A, it, it felt like not a lot happened for how many pages there were in it, but it was still... It was kind of fun. 
Yeah, it was a lot of setup, I feel like. It, it's nice to see them planning something for the future, which I feel like hasn't been happening lately, or it hasn't been feeling like that lately with what they've been doing. So I, I don't mind seeing some seeds planted. It certainly sets us up to see something's going to go down with a furious, wait, fearsome? Fearsome five minus one mm-hmm. is what they're calling themselves, which very much reminds me of the funky four plus one, which I, I don't know if that's intentional or not. It seems like it kind of must be, right? I don't know their chronology. The Funky 4 Plus one was probably at the height of their popularity, like 81, 82. Okay, so this is just a few years behind, so that could work. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. It it seems odd that they wouldn't just call themselves the Fearsome 4. They wouldn't even need to change their monograms or anything. Mm -hmm. We've got a new artist. It is Chuck Patton. What'd you think of the art? I thought it was pretty great. I mean, it's not Perez, but still pretty good. Yeah, it's not Perez. But yeah, like you said, not bad. It reminded me of a, a an almost very 90s art style, but not in a bad way. But no, I like Chuck Patton's art. At the time, he was probably at the height of his popularity. He was working on the Justice League right then and was one of the architects of the Justice League Detroit era, which is not fondly remembered by a lot of people. But I am one of them who did really like the Justice League Detroit. That was when they brought in uh, guys named Steel and Gypsy and Vibe. And Aquaman was the team leader. And there are some really weird, really fun stories that were uh, Jerry Conway written and Chuck Patton drew. But they were not very popular. And after that, Chuck Patton felt that he was perhaps unfairly blamed for the lack of success that the series had. And didn't end up finding the same level of work he was before it. And uh, it's it's kind of a shame because his art is really, really good. And it does kind of make me wonder if he maybe would have gotten more opportunities if he hadn't been one of the few black artists that DC was employing at the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the, the art in this was, was good. Yeah, overall, uh, nice. The art certainly didn't detract from the story. And I thought it looked pretty. Or at least I like, pretty, pretty. I like, I like the way... <laughs> That he draws Raven in this too. She seems a little more like serious and kind of sinister. Yeah, that totally works. She looks frankly a little bit older too, mm-hmm. which helps with that. Yeah, what did you think of Raven's portrayal in this? You know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of more of the same of that like, ah, oh, I should use my powers, but what if I get too evil? But I do like seeing her kind of give into it a little bit. Yeah, I had similar feelings. It kind of reminds me of Beast Boy's arc in the same way, where it's not so much an arc as a loop, Mm -hmm. where I think this seems like it's going someplace interesting, but we've seen it ramp up to this before, and then it always just gets dialed back and reset, and then we see it again. So, I don't know, I guess I'm guardedly optimistic, because it seems like they're about to do something cool with it, but it's like I said, man, fool me once, fuck you. Fool me twice. Fuck you. Yeah. I I do like how when she starts destroying the bad guys, she has this thing of being like, oh, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? (laughs) Like, it's like kind of like, why are you hitting yourself? Oh, Uh, totally. I like the idea that you can kind of tell she's turning evil because she starts throwing the F word around. She starts calling people fools. Yep. Yep. It kind of makes me wonder if... Because you see that Simon, with a P, later on, is also calling people fools. 
I wonder if that is maybe a worse word in the DC universe. Like if maybe that is considered the F word to them. Mm. Like if you can't say fool on television because it is so closely associated with supervillains and murderous fiends and shit. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a four-letter word. Indeed. There are also a couple of just weird things about Raven's appearance in this. One is that at the very onset of it, what sparks her to finally get off of her stalagmite and come back into the regular DC universe is that she senses that a child is about to die mm-hmm. and or will die without her intervention. She has apparently been sitting in that universe for like the last almost 10 issues and has been sensing the whole universe's like woes and agony. In that time, is this the first time a child is about to die? Yeah, once again, if you think about it too hard, it somehow doesn't really add up. I feel like it wouldn't have been that hard to explain, like, if she was, like, maybe just sensing those people that were around the people that she cared about or something. But I feel like I would need, I needed a couple of sentences to figure out, wait, is this the first really bad thing that might happen in that time? Mm Mm-hmm. It also made me wonder again, and this has definitely come up before, what the fuck her powers are. Because at one point during a fight, she has a prehensile cape that just reaches out and grabs a dude and picks him up, which looks super cool. But how the fuck do you use empathy to do that? Did she somehow absorb her cape's pain of not? being able to grab people and then reflect it back on the fabric. Yeah, that didn't make any sense. I, I noted that panel as well. I was like, that is super cool. I don't get it, but uh, I'm yeah. glad she can do that. Yeah, good for her. She has kind of a funny turn of phrase too uh, towards the end of that fight where she says that she can uh, feed the bad guys with the collective fears of all mankind. Oh, yeah. It's a weird threat. It is. I wonder if she had been uh, maybe reading some Dorothy Parker, where she says that uh, hatred can be filling, but it isn't nourishing. Oh, I doubt it. I don't think she brought any Dorothy Parker to Azeroth with her. But that's- Well, that's on her because she should have. And she's not in Azeroth. She's not allowed to go to Azeroth anymore. They probably got tons of Dorothy Parker there. Oh, that's right. Where did she go? She went to some other rocky She just dimension. goes to like the stalagmite lightning dimension where... There's nothing but rock formations, and she yells about her feelings. I'm surprised I didn't see her. It's a big dimension. Mm. Maybe keep looking. Eh, I don't know if I want to be fed the collective fears of all mankind. Well, I mean, a lot of that's going to depend on the preparation. Like, maybe if it's in a nice bechamel sauce, huh? Definitely needs cheese. Some kind of fat. <laughs> well, I mean... Fat is flavor. It is. And I, I understand that the collective fears of mankind are fat soluble. So if you try to take them without infusing them in a fat, it's just not going to take effect. Yeah. But then if you infuse them too much, you just get scared and don't want to go anywhere. So the dudes that are stealing the nuclear dude from Star Labs, we find out at the end of the issue they were working for Gizmo. And there is a little hint at that early on because they do have little G's as part of their uniform on the back of their head. Mm-hmm. And that, that was kind of a nice touch. I like the idea that Gizmo has a bunch of thugs working for him. I like any nod to him having his own thing going on outside of the Fearsome Five. Mm-hmm. It positions them more like the Wu-Tang Clan 
Like they all have their own <laughs> solo albums and solo projects. And then, yeah, they're a loose collective that gets together to pursue their goals and they're a group in that sense. But then they also split up and have their own empires that they're running. I think that's a cool idea, especially for a guy like Gizmo, who it's tempting to view almost as a flunky in his position within the Fearsome Five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except both Gizmo and Slimon think they're the RZA, so there's going to be some conflict. I don't think Gizmo thinks he's the RZA. I no. think he's he's probably more of a Raekwon the chef. Oh, uh, you don't think he's the genius? Oh, man, I mean, he is a genius, but... Despite his specific genius, he doesn't seem like a big picture guy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, no. there's only five of them, so you don't have to have a one for one with the whole Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah, in fact, Simon seems like the only one who's like, we need to get more badass so we can be more powerful. Everybody else is like, I just want to get paid. Yeah, except for Shimmer at this point, which there's definitely a shift in her where it breaks down Simon wants world power. Gizmo just wants money. Mammoth just wants money, but he's loyal to his sister. Mm-hmm. And Shimmer now is like, yeah, you know what? I did just want the money, but it's time for me to really grow and evolve. And now I want to murder and humiliate teenagers. I think it's because uh, Starfire knocked her over. Oh, well, that's fair. Nobody likes to be pushed down. Yep. She got pushed down with a star bolt right in the butt, too. Because <laughs> I got really smarted. Yeah, although, honestly, given her costume, the butt is one of the better places to get hit with a Starbolt because it's one of the few places on her uniform that doesn't have just, like, a little window carved out of it. Yeah, it's not like one of those uh, fart competition uniforms. (laughs) Well, maybe it is now that Starbolt hit that Maybe that's what she's so pissed off about. (laughs) A perfectly good disco bad guy outfit. Goddamn shame. It did seem like a weird evolution for her. Within the Fearsome Five, too, we saw a couple of different things happening. We talked about Raven's powers being kind of ill-defined. In this, Shimmer's powers get better defined in a way that makes them make a lot more sense to me and makes her a more interesting character to me. We find out she can only transmute matter, it only lasts a few minutes, and she can only do it if it's right near her. I don't think that had necessarily been spelled out explicitly before, Mm -hmm. and I like having those rules in place. Conversely, it seems like Simon has less restrictions and less rules with his power and can I guess do whatever he thinks now? Mm-hmm. I thought that was just a brag when he said it, but he uses his power in a lot of weird ways. I kept trying to like fix it in my mind what he was doing that's like, okay, well maybe he's just projecting illusions into people's minds that he's doing this because i thought most of his powers were telepathy based and not really telekinetic Mm -hmm. but in this like people are shooting him the bullets don't hit him and he flings nightwing up into the sky and he just will apparently go up to the stratosphere and he can just kind of do anything with his mind if he concentrates for a second which begs a couple of questions one when did this happen? And B, why isn't he better at his job? Or like, why does he even need this other crew, right? Like, couldn't he just think all of his desires into fruition? Yeah, it doesn't really make sense that he would need that much backup if that's the case. Mm-hmm. But here's the situation that that might make a little bit of sense in. Couple of options. One, He's just really stupid. He hasn't figured out that he can think everything into reality. He's just not good at thinking. 
He's like, uh, yeah, but I need to think of what I want. And gosh, that takes me forever. Like, I really um, wish I could have a pizza. And his buddies have to be like, okay, it's round. Yeah, Smells exactly. Good. Hot. Here's a picture. Yeah, I think that might be the case. Or here's the thing that actually seems a little bit more plausible to me. He is super drunk all the time. And so he has trouble focusing. Mm. Now, there are a couple of clues that that might be the case. First of all, it makes sense. And it makes sense that Nightwing says, yeah, he can do whatever he wants with his mind, but it takes him a little while to focus on anything. Okay, that would seem to jibe with that. Mm -hmm. If I was telepathic, which he definitely is, I would probably want to self-medicate in some way to tamp that down. So the idea that he would have to drink heavily to like if other people's thoughts were seeping into his brain, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's what is probably a typo, but it sounds like he's got slurred speech not that dissimilar to one Rudy. <laughs> On page 12, he says, you know you're a fool, lad, and Simon simply can't abide fools. They left the P out of simply. Now, maybe it's just a conservation of consonants, and because he decided to put the extra P at the beginning of his name, he doesn't have them to use in conversation. Mm. But the fact that he says simly instead of simply, I think could be interpreted that he is slurring his speech, which would corroborate my theory that Simon is a problem drunk and is continually intoxicated. Maybe his uh, his brain bucket thing is filled with some sort of alcohol. <laughs> I think that would be one of maybe the only explanations I can think of that if anything he thinks of, he can manifest. Mm -hmm. The motherfucker hasn't managed to think of a hat yet mm -hmm. because that shit looks gross as fuck. Yeah, it is a really ugly look. He can't even think of a better ponytail than that. And as we all know, hat and a shitty ponytail is a really good look. <laughs> yeah. Just ask eighth grade me. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Fit him out with a nice vest. Get that uh, fedoran shitty ponytail going. Mm -hmm. We're looking at a whole new Simon with a P. Yeah, very mature look. Anyway, that's my dissertation on why Simon with a P is probably drunk. Yeah, and just from a self preservation standpoint like wearing a glass dome with your brain visible through it kind of seems like an invitation to attack yeah that's gonna cause more problems than it solves mm -hmm. i talked a little bit about the dudes that gizmo hired to steal the nuclear guy mm -hmm. there is a moment where they talk about the fact that their blaster guns are set on stun mm-hmm as they are discussing that, it looks like a blast is going in a dude's back and out through his front in a way that definitely does not look like a stun move. Nope, nope. It looks like he's been thoroughly lasered. It was really funny to me to read that with, at the time, him saying, don't make us set these things off a stun. It reminded me of, like, in Commando, if... <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, after he jams the steam pipe through the guy's chest, mm -hmm. if he had said, lucky for you, this pipe that I've just jammed through your innards is set on stun. You'll wake up with quite a heartache. Oh, uh, yeah, it would be just like that. In fact, I bet those orange and yellow guys probably all have uh, Austrian accents. Probably. Yeah, a path creeps. Get back to the underground chopper. 
<laughs> I think you veered into Brooklyn a little bit on the end. But that's okay. Nope, it was spot on. Are we supposed to know who the nuclear person is? I don't think so. Okay, it didn't ring a bell for me. I think it might be hinting at him. It didn't say his name, did it, at any point? The person that the Fearsome Four are personally busting out, I'm sorry, Fearsome Five minus one, mm. are personally busting out of the tri-state prison was named Jinx, and we definitely haven't seen her before. So it does seem like maybe their plan is to go from the Fearsome Five minus one to the Fearsome Five plus one, or possibly... They might change their name to, and this is kind of what I hope they do, the Fearsome 5 minus 1 plus 2. <laughs> One can only hope. Yeah. You know, really make the superhero stop and think for a minute about it. And while they're doing that, maybe you can uh, steal some stuff or take the time to plug in your death ray before announcing that you're about to plug it in and giving the superheroes a chance to beat you up, which was a very funny thing to me that Gizmo did. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you clarified, too, that it's Tri-State. I, uh, based on the the back of the dude's uniforms, I was like, Tri-Saint security? Which three <laughs> saints are they representing? <laughs> Or possibly they were just misspelling the word tryst. Ah. Like they were just really into having a lover's rendezvous. <laughs> what do you think about Beast Boy in this one? I think he gets off the hook way too easy. I think if I was Joe, I would have been like, hey, no, <laughs> fuck you. I don't believe you that you're trying to learn sign language and I'm not going to go hang out with you. I would think that too, but I will say I am guardedly optimistic that maybe this shit will stick with beast boy it's been through this before it's a loop it's not it's not an arc i know but it at least remembered from one issue ago that he has made some change and he's acting like a decent dude and he learned sign language some he says he's learning (laughs) i don't see any any evidence of this yeah i guess you're right but uh, Joe is such a, a positive character. He's like, I know he's supposed to be signing yes, but it looks like he's gonna. Get, he's like trying to give a knuckle bump. <laughs> Maybe he is. I would like to see that much personality from Jericho. I want to like this character. He just has been written as so bland for the most part. I mean, he's got his art thing, so that's mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. But what is not helping his case in that regard is that after being detained by various governments for a number of issues and just coming off the Concorde on like a many hour flight and being held in Germany for a long time and questioned by Interpol, his first thought is that he just really wants to get home to a warm shower. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck wants a warm shower? You want a hot shower. You want a hot shower feels good, cold shower is invigorating, warm shower? Who the fuck is this guy? I don't I'm know. really annoyed at him for that. <laughs> that's funny. That didn't occur to me, but that's a good point. A warm shower is that's very it just it sounds tepid almost. Yeah. Yeah, and and that is my problem ultimately with Jericho so far. I'd like to see a little more flair out of him. Yeah. Maybe he wants a hot shower, maybe give him some personality, make him like cold showers. Something. I still think of, uh, I think it was something that you brought up a few issues ago when he was trying to save the artwork. I wonder, yeah, what what his mom does have to do whenever he puts something on the fridge. I still think, like, every time she changes that out. No, art can never be destroyed. 
Like, oh, I'm just archiving it here. I'm going to go hide inside the neighbor for a f- few days now. <laughs> he is dressed pretty sharp. Yeah. When Gar goes to meet him at the airport, it's like, oh, he's kind of dressed like a bad boy. He's got like a leather jacket on and he's got jeans on. And then he turns around and you find out in addition to the leather jacket with a popped collar and his jeans, he's wearing a white button down with a red ascot. Mm -hmm. It's a very complicated look. It is. It's like he's a bad boy dandy. It's I was just going to say bad boy dandy. It's hard to. Really? Yeah. (laughs) It's a rare combination, and I wish we saw more of that reflected in his personality other than sartorially. But yeah, right now he's just a warm shower of a dude. Yep. He's got some sensible uh, Adidas kicks to go with his his bad boy dandy attire. Yeah, he's, I I wouldn't say necessarily a sharp dresser, but a complicated one, and I can appreciate that. (laughs) The other main story arc that we see developing in this is Cyborg. What do you think of that? I wonder why they had to shave half of his head. They would have probably had to shave his whole head if he had any hair on the metal half of it. They're doing everything surgery on him. So I think that kind of makes sense. Oh, so the little thing that goes around the other side of his head is probably connected into his his brain. Yeah. All right. All right. I mean, they're they're just getting all up in there. You think they're going to give him hair as well as uh, uh, plastic parts? I think he's probably going to have to get a wig. Mm. I mean, I don't think you can make plastics that can grow hair. And it would be really asymmetrical if they put hair on his previously robot half of his head and he had to try to grow his hair out to match it. I think shaving and wearing a wig is probably going to be the thing that makes the most sense for him. Yeah, no, I I meant a fake Oh, you meant like pubes? (laughs) No, like, um, like the prosthetic parts that they're putting on are, are going to be made to look like they're human parts. So maybe right. they would just do like a yeah wig or something. Well, the, the problem would be you would have to do a half wig because the other half of your head is still going to be growing its own hair. Well, you know? may- maybe. I don't know. Maybe they can just shut that off. Oh, I mean, they could probably like do some electrolysis on him while he's in there. Yeah, well, he's out, you know. Yeah, they got lasers poking it. everything else on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It's an interesting arc that he's going through. It it definitely is a change from the way the surgery was presented in the last issue, where it was just going to be superficially different. And now he's not only going to look like he doesn't have robot parts, but his superpowers won't be able to work. And I think that definitely makes it more interesting and a more complicated arc. And I'm curious as to how it's going to go. Yeah, me too. I feel like there was kind of a, a big assumption made on Dr. Uh, Genet's part, where he's passing out, and she's like, right before he passes out under the anesthetic, she's asking him, are you, you know, 100% sure you want to go through with this? You're not going to have your superpowers anymore. And he just starts going off about how much he loves being a superhero. And then he passes out, and she's like, oh, he didn't mean that. I know he just really wants to be a normal boy. Exactly, but she says, like, he's, he's talked about how much he liked his super stuff, and then she says, well, why change? Vic Stone has already succumbed to the anesthetics, but Jeanet Clyburn knew what his answer would be. (laughs) Despite his feelings for the Titans, despite his love for each of his friends, this was his one chance to rejoin the rest of the human race, to be a person again. Not just an oddity, not some steel-jacketed freak, not even one of the special people. Yeah, that is a huge amount of supposition on her part. Especially when you consider that she just asked him the question, why change? Mm -hmm. 
is she just doing like dental hygienist small talk while he's under heavy anesthesia? Oh man, that must be the worst. Because that's yeah. really annoying when you're at the at the dentist and you're like, hur, hur, hur. you know, you can't. Why are you asking me questions? I can't answer. Yeah. So to have that when you're like under sedation, especially there's probably a part of it where you can hear things, but you can't really move that much or whatever. Mm. It's got to suck. I do not approve of Clyburn's bedside manner, nor her tendency to make huge levels of assumptions about like, well, what he would think is this thought process that is, I mean, on its surface, at least pretty derogatory. Mm. And I mean, I guess it's one thing if Cyborg is thinking that about himself, but for her to assume that he feels that way about himself is really not cool. Yeah, so, it's a big a big assumption, but I guess he signed some papers or something before the whole thing. Yeah, maybe he had to do an es- there was an essay section and she read that. Yeah. So they start the operation after he passes out and Dr. Clyburn mm-hmm. says, oh, yeah, yeah, no, he totally wants this. And then things start to go awry. And there's a scene in which his, his blood pressure and everything is rising and everything's going so crazy that I, I don't know if it's Dr. Clyburn or one of her assistants is just like throwing back his or her hands and saying, damn, <laughs> you don't want that to happen in the ER. Well, the other thing that you would hope wouldn't happen in the ER is, like I said, he apparently signed some papers and did some waivers and shit, but it seemed like right before the operation was when he learned that he wouldn't have his superpowers anymore. You'd think that might have come up a little sooner. Right. (laughs) He's just like, he's fading out. Can you imagine that? He's like, wait, so I'm not going to be able to do my super shit anymore? She's like, no, I'm afraid not. You sure you want to do this? No, you sure you want to do this? Uh... I love being a superhero. Zonk. Yeah. Well, full steam ahead. Tucker and Mod show up. Always happy to see Tucker and Mod, and I like seeing them interact with Sarah Sims for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have their misgivings. Tucker and Mod have some uh some fun banter about how shitty doctors are, and they only smile when they give you the bill. That's nice. It's good to see Sarah Sims again. I liked the earlier scenes where some of my favorite scenes of Cyborg are of him volunteering with Sarah Sims class. And I think that's where we've seen kind of the best and most interesting character development in Cyborg. And it's the thing that gets brought up a lot in all of the reboots of the character through like cartoons or when they reboot the comic series or whatever. One of the things that is generally included and one of kind of his defining things is of him volunteering with children with disabilities. And I always like seeing that come up. Yeah, yeah, it was good. There, there was one joke, speaking of medical stuff in there, I think it was on page 16, where they're talking about, the, I guess, the costs of the operation, and he makes a joke about having the black and blue cross. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that's because he gets beat up a lot, if that's just what blue cross is called in the DC universe, or if he meant that Batman, through Robin, covered all of his medical expenses. <laughs> Okay, that could. Those were the options that occurred to me. I noted that line too. I like to think that it's because he knows that somewhere down the line, Bruce Wayne is going to pick up the bill. Mm. Despite the doctor's big assumptions and everything, man, just based on the way that the technology is drawn, if I have to have a major surgery, I think you... I would probably want to have it at Star Labs. It is fucking cool looking. A lot of automated lasers, which it 
does look like they are just lasering his clothes off. I guess I'm a little bit confused as to which parts of Cyborg's costume are his costume and which parts of it are his cybernetic parts because it looked like they were like lasering through the straps of what I had always thought was his unitard. Mm-hmm. So are they just lasering his clothes off or is that some kind of an armored breastplate that's attached to him? Yeah, nobody knows. I mean, I think they're just figuring out as they go. <laughs> they, they have charts. But I mean, if that is just part of him, then Cyborg is continually just running around naked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know, man. You ready to get into the minutia? Yes, yes, I think we should. Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Now, Corey, we've already hit on some highlights of this, but sartorially speaking, which fashion choices in this issue did you feel were worthy of comment? Yeah, so sartorially Speaking, there's uh, three highlights come to mind. Um, as always, Tucker and Maude are a sharp-looking couple, and uh, we can they are indeed get into that. Uh, there's Jericho we already talked about, and then also Gizmo's henchman who we we touched on also. There was one other thing that I wanted to bring up, which was there is a kid wearing a bootleg Titans T-shirt. What it says Titans Four with the number four ever. It's one of the kids that uh, Cyborg is volunteering with. He's wearing a green jacket with a uh, white t-shirt under it that it really does look like he made his own iron-on transfer shirt that says Titans Forever, or possibly he had a Fantastic Four shirt that he was wearing that he modified to be Titans gear. And I wonder if maybe somewhere down the line, I don't know how litigious the Titans are. It seems like something that Beast Boy might have copyrighted. That kid might be in some legal trouble. Oh, man. Yeah, I see. I I didn't even notice that somehow before. That is pretty cool. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, and as you said, Tucker and Maudie, whether they're in a hospital, whether they're in church, whether they're in their grandson's apartment, Always dressed sharp, and today is no exception. Tucker is wearing a green suit with green plaid pants. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe and a polo shirt on under, casual-ish. Yeah, and Maudie. What is that? Would you say uh, fuchsia, maybe, or purple? Yeah, I'd say probably fuchsia. Mm. Yeah, wearing a fuchsia dress. But yeah, she looks really nice, too. And then Sarah Sims is wearing a uh, somewhat conservative red pantsuit. Uh, Wants to be taken seriously by the doctors that she is dealing with. I can understand wanting to dress up a little bit for a hospital situation. But at the same time, she doesn't have the big shoulder pads that would make it more of a, like, 80s power business suit. Mm -hmm. So uh, she, you know, doesn't want to appear too intimidating either. I think it's a sensible wardrobe choice that Sarah Sims has made. Indeed. And uh, together, her and Tucker look very Christmassy. Good for them. Yep. It's always Christmas when those two are around. Oh. <laughs> Corey, what were your favorite sound effects in this issue? Oh, man, there were some pretty good ones. But I did pick a favorite, and it went also with what I thought was a pretty hilarious panel. And it's the word thunk. And it's Gizmo getting smashed like like a one potato, two potato smashed on the top of the head from, I think, Starfire. Yeah, I liked that, too. I wish I like the idea that maybe you could incorporate the sound effects into your banter. So, like, if Gizmo said, say, I thought I'd plug this death ray machine in, then as she bonked him on the head, she could say, oh, is that what you 
and then bonk him, and then it says thunk. Uh-huh. I think that'd be pretty good. That would be pretty good. Alas. I don't think she did that, but maybe next time. Maybe. She does say, oh, be quiet. That works pretty good, too. Yeah, pretty that was one of my choices. The other one I had was uh, when Mammoth destroys the guard tower in the prison, and it makes the noise, scrunch! Like metal rending and tearing, or twisting? Yeah, or the less diminutive form of a 80s hair tie. Ah. A scrunchy. And uh, them's was the sound effects, near as I could figure. Pretty good. Yeah, I'm trying to be more folksy. Yeah, yeah, no, I got the that, that came across. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, I, I did. It was one of those that actually rang a bell back to my childhood, and it was on uh, page two, and it was a reference to the Uncola, which was a 7-Up ad campaign that they were running back then. Yeah, it was a very popular 7-Up ad campaign that started in the late 60s, and is one of those that was popular enough that it actually led to 7-Up having to rebrand pretty significantly in the 90s because it was popular enough that 7-Up became kind of associated because it had been the beverage of choice for youth in the 60s and 70s. Um, People started to think of it in the 90s as an old person drink. Oh, wow. And so that was, they had to radically rebrand and that was where they, you know, started putting sunglasses on spots so that you would assume he was high all the time. Right. And therefore cool. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I had that too. And also the reference to a Cherry Lime Ricky, which... Both the Uncola and the Cherry Lime Ricky thing, they are timestamps, but I think they speak more to Marv Wolfman's age than they do to when this comic actually came out. Because those are both things that I think, like, that's a soda fountain drink that you would get a Cherry Lime Ricky. Mm-hmm. That sounds and more old that timey seems, to me. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's more like things that Wolfman remembered from when he was young rather than like a mid 80s thing, you mm-hmm. know? Mm hmm. Yeah, it does have a baby boomer feel. I agree. Corey, let's take this party to the bow zone. Okay. What instance of a character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you feel was worthy of highlight? Well, I was pleased to see finally, yes, natural bozo. Yeah, we got a natty B. Uh, I think this one was from Gizmo on page 10, um, where he's he's dissing the JLA, calling them second-rate bozos. Ouch! Ouch, indeed. I wonder if Chuck Patton viewed that as a dig on him, too, because mm. he was illustrating the Justice League at the time, and they were being thought of as a second-rate team, and unfortunately, in my opinion, a second-rate book at the time. Dang. Ouch. Yeah. I don't know. You'd think that the, I don't know, just not even necessarily just on the illustration side, but this, the industry in general was probably small enough that you wanted to take a little bit of care with who you called out and who you didn't call out. You'd think, but I mean, traditionally, that kind of hasn't been the case. In the 70s, you did find like writers and artists taking little swipes at each other in ways that you hoped were good natured, but you could never quite be sure. Mm-hmm. Well, at any rate, yeah, Natural Bozo. So I was happy to see that. But it was not, I think, my favorite insult. Oh? 
And what was? Well, we mentioned fool being the uh, F word of these comics earlier. And um, I really liked how Raven doubles down on it. She starts on page four by calling some guy a fool. And then uh-huh. on page five brings it up another notch by calling a group, the group of them contemptible little fools. Yep. Like, whew. Man, she is on a roll. That was actually the first pass on uh, Mr. T's album that came out in the 80s. It was initially going to be called Be Someone or Be Someone's Contemptible Little Fool. (laughs) But in the interest of brevity, it did get trimmed down. Incidentally, do you know that album, the Mr. T album? No, I wish. It's got the song Treat Your Mother Right on it. No, I wish I did. I, I don't. Well, if you don't know it, I assume you also don't know who wrote a lot of the lyrics for it. I think maybe all the lyrics for it. Oh my gosh, it's not Randy Macho Man Savage. It is not, sadly. Sadly. Oh. But it is somebody who you might guess from his... George Perpard. You're not that far off. Yeah, actually, you are pretty far off. It's somebody who, from his uh, nom de plume, you might guess was related to Mr. T. Um... Ice-T. What? Yeah. He was coming up in the rap scene at the time, and it was one of his first big gigs was uh, writing the lyrics for <laughs> Mr. T's album. Man, I'm never going to see an episode of Law & Order SVU quite the same. Corey, yes. every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has a Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Speedy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad? I had Starfire, and my notes kind of cracked me up because all I wrote is for putting dick on the roof. But So Nightwing was getting kind of uh, beat up. She feared for his safety, so she was just like, hey, buddy, you're going to have to sit this one out. And he's like, no, I'm not going to. And she says, yes, you are. And um, for his own good, fly, flies him out of harm's way and sticks him on a roof. And uh, Yeah, he has a little tantrum about that. It's pretty great. Yeah, we'll get to that when we talk about panels. <laughs> yeah, we will. I did not have Starfire as my Aqualad. In fact, I had her as my Speedy. What? Because honestly, uh, okay, a couple of reasons. First of all, I think that Dick was fine. The way that he was injured was he got thrown up into the air. uh, So maybe he had the bends or something. But he was still like, he didn't have any injured limbs or anything he seemed like he was still good to go he still wanted to fight and i think if they had had another person there things might have gone a little bit better for them wonder girl was of the opinion although she did not voice this opinion that they needed dick in this fight Mm -hmm. i believe actually what she said was "Corey, we need dick Um, (laughs) but she thought that uh in a thought bubble and they kind of did in that fight and the other thing is When Dick is thrown up into the stratosphere, Starfire rushes up to get him. And then, to try to slow themselves down to keep them from rocketing up into the sky continuously, she starts firing her star bolts up into the air. And Wonder Girl's like, even that doesn't seem to be slowing them down. Mm -hmm. Why the fuck would it? That's the equivalent of, like, firing your gun up into the air to slow yourself down. Why doesn't she just turn around and fly downward to slow them down? You know, that's a good point. I guess in her defense. (laughs) I'm firing my gun into the sky as hard as I can. Why am I not going downward? If if your gun was a star bolt and you could fire it continuously, it would be not 
dissimilar to a jet engine or something like that. That's not a jet. I mean, that's not how she flies. That's she doesn't fly by firing her star bolts at the ground. She no. flies by having magic space fire hair. I know. I'm just trying to help help out. They're my, not propulsive. And also, okay, so logistically, your complaint makes sense. But what I was touched by is that the reason that she won Stick out of the fight is not because he was injured and couldn't continue, but it was because that he came so close to having a, you know, a deadly experience that it freaked her out. And she realized, you know, I really care about this person and I, I need them to be safe right now. I understand that, but he is a trained fighter and he would be very useful in that fight and he has proven himself time and time again in that capacity ever since the original teen titans days i think it was a bad choice and she let their relationship cloud her decision making in the battle and i i think she did a bad job okay that's fair but i also like seeing her do something that disempowers him and makes him angry because he's been so Oh, I liked it too. Day. I liked it too. I think it was a bad decision. Don't get me wrong. I thought it was hilarious and I was totally in favor of it. I just think it was a bad thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Strategically, not great, but very satisfying. So Yeah, I had Wonder Girl as my choice. She recognizes the strategic limitations that taking Dick out of the equation put them in and she was able to rescue him and coriander when starfire was trying to slow them down by rather than altering her direction shooting her guns in the air wonder girl lassoed them and tied them to an iron beam to keep them from floating off into space mm-hmm. and uh she did a good job in general with the fights although she did get fooled by shimmer and gets trapped in a wall mm-hmm. which is not great but uh Overall, I still think she did the best job, so she was my choice. Although my backup, I got to say, was Beast Boy for uh, I I took him at his word and thought that he was actually learning sign language and not lying about that. Maybe that was naivete on my part, but I, I was heartened to see Beast Boy doing better and I want him to improve. So I'm hoping that's what's happening, but he's not getting my choice because I've been burned before. Yes, yes. Time will tell. Time will tell. Indeed. Conversely, who did you have as your speedy? I, I just went with Nightwing because he got so upset about about being put on the roof and kind of threw a fit about it. And also, before that point, wasn't super effective in the in the combat. He kicked Simon one time. That was pretty good. He did do a good kick. That's true. He did a good kick. He had a good yell. <laughs> he had a really good frustrated yell. I don't know. One of the main reasons why he got my vote for Speedy is that I felt like it was pretty hypocritical of him to get so pissed off about this because it totally seemed like something he would do to anybody else on the team. Meaning, yeah, you know, I he's often the, I know what's best for you, even though you don't like it and blah, blah, blah. You have to do what I say. I think that's fair. And so moving on to the favorite panel, it seems like there may be some overlap here. I loved the panel where Dick is having a little fucking temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. And yelling, Corey! Well, it really does look like he's just flailing his arms and stomping up and down. Yeah, that was actually got, got the nod from my favorite, too. Yeah, I called it Dick's Temper Tantrum. Mm-hmm. One of the other ones that I liked a lot, I liked the surgery panels of Cyborg. I thought those were really well executed. And the one right before the surgery where it's them showing the x-rays of his body. It's all of this incredibly intricate detail uh, that's really, really well done and really well mapped out of uh, orange inks over a yellow background. Mm -hmm. I thought it looked cool. Yeah, 
that was the closest to some of Perez's level of detail that we've we've seen in a while. So it was nice to see that. Yeah, good good stuff there. In in your copy of the comic and that that scene where he's flailing his arms and yelling, Corey. Does his domino mask to you look like it's like um kind of striking? It looks like it's melting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In mine, it looks like it's kind of just like melting on his face. Like maybe it's kiss style face paint. And when he's upset, it's just like melting. Yeah. Because like around the eyes, it looks like there's streaks of blue interspersed with the the black. Like it is, yeah, coming off or something. Like he's so frustrated. He's got tears of anger (laughs) rolling down his face. Yeah, it totally does. Corey, I have but one further question I must ask of you. Wapoot! In the year of our Lord, 1985, and the month of our Lord, August, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey Wapoot? Right. So the month started off with a bit of a bang, but it was rudely interrupted. And so the bang part was he was really excited to go put in a little celebrity appearance at the 18th Comic-Con in San Diego. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go sign some autographs, take some pictures with people. And, you know, he doesn't normally allow himself that level of uh, adulation. He's kind of more of a private person, but he, he worked up the nerve and he was really looking forward to it. However, when he was en route to the Comic-Con, he got some really disturbing news from some of his his friends in the uh, the environmental community. Ah, Greenpeace? Yeah. So they had this, this boat in the 80s called the Rainbow Warrior that, um, you know, they took around to, to different places. And at this time, it was in New Zealand where they were using it as part of a protest against undersea nuclear tests uh, that the, the French government was doing. They actually went and blew up the ship and sunk it, tragically resulting in the death of a, of a journalist in the process and uh, denied all knowledge of this. And... It was only through some behind-the-scenes work that Aqualad did that the truth uh, came to light later at the end of the month. And um, the uh, two uh, French secret agents actually wound up going to jail for for the death of that journalist and the sinking of the boat. Wow. Yeah, so didn't get to sign the autographs and do the pictures at Comic-Con, but did get to put some bad guys behind bars. Well, good for him. Yeah, it was a a very eventful month for, for young Aqualad. As you no doubt know, Aqualad was a huge fan of the comedy group Monty Python. Um, <laughs> he was always quoting them at the other Teen Titans. Talking in that and, horrible British accent. <laughs> yeah, and it was kind of cute, but I think it did kind of get on their nerves a little bit. He had swung by their T-shaped skyscraper recently for a visit and uh, would not stop singing the Spam song. Mm. Eventually, Nightwing was just like, hey, look, if you like spam so much, why don't you just go visit their fucking factory, okay? And so Aqualad was like, yeah, that'd be really cool. I'll get a spam t-shirt. And uh, really, he was ahead of the curve in his ironic appreciation of the product spam. Hmm. Uh, A lot of people wouldn't catch on to that wave until the 90s. But uh, Aqualad was a young man ahead of his time. So he decided to swing by there. And when he got to the Hormel meatpacking plant in Austin, he found that the conditions there were just deplorable. And so he talked to some of the workers and he's like, this is unsafe. How can you how can you do this? And uh, got involved and uh, helped organize the walkout of 4,000 meatpackers on August 17th at the Hormel factory. 
Wow. Now, unfortunately, the strike did not go well. They they were on strike for, I think, 10 or 11 months, and eventually the National Guard got deployed, and the National Union did not back the meat packers. Aqualad was pretty upset about that. He, he was pretty disheartened. So in addition to his organizing, he also did some charity work. One of his things was a supervillain rehabilitation program uh, where, you know, a chaperoned supervillain would go on these outings from Newgate, the more liberal arts prison that was in upstate New York. And so Aqualad took Dr. Polaris, the magnet villain, to a baseball game. And they actually had a pretty nice afternoon. Uh, It was a... California Angels, New York Yankees game. And they both got pretty into rooting against the Yankees. I mean, Dr. Polaris is evil, but he's not that evil that he's going to be a Yankees fan. And overall, it was a really nice day, except both Aqualad and Dr. Polaris really started rooting against Don Baylor. Had a Hall of Fame career. He's a great player, but he was a New York Yankee. And so they were booing him. And Dr. Polaris, he was not supposed to be using his powers on this outing, but he did, in fact, uh, make a ball switch pass a little bit and bonk Don Baylor. And it was Don Baylor's 190th time getting hit by a pitch. And that was a record at the time. And I think it's safe to say it was not Dr. Polaris's first Yankees game he had attended. (laughs) And Aqualad, he reprimanded Dr. Polaris for it, but he also agreed not to tell the warden at Newgate that it had happened because Yankee gets hit by a pitch. That's not a tragedy. Mm. And that was what Aqualad was probably up to. Wow. Busy month with uh, activism and um, community service. Yeah. Activism, organizing community service. Those are the three tenets of the Aqualad way. Good job, Aqualad. Good job indeed. And good job to you, listeners, bearing with us through this episode. And good job to us for hopefully ironing out the audio problems that took us forever at the beginning of this recording. I hope it all works. Me too. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland.gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes or whatever iTunes turns into, or Stitcher, or Overcast, a number of podcatchers. However you're listening to it right now is a way that you can listen to it. We're on Spotify, too. So uh, if you wouldn't mind going into whatever application you are listening to it on and leaving us a positive review, I would appreciate that. Another way that you could help uh, support the show is by supporting us financially at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do that, you get access to a bunch of bonus material that is for donors only, including some videos that I make and also a monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, about Howard the Duck called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. Hours of enjoyment await you. For the low, low price of however much money you feel like giving us. Um, we will be back next year. Next year? Well, I mean, yeah, we will be back next year. We'll also be back next week. Oh, okay. Well, I'll be back next week. I think Corey might be having some difficulty contacting us from the pocket dimension where he finds himself. So we have a special episode planned for next week called Defenders After Dark. What does that mean? You'll have to tune in next week to find out. Okay, well, good luck hanging out in the pocket, Corey. Thank you. You too. 
I okay. Mean, you know what I mean. Good luck. Thanks. Good luck to us, one and all. And that's the things that we say to end the show. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. All right. That's a beautiful song I wrote just for you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Goodbye. Bye. And they know it. Hey, I just realized that you're recording in the bathroom of your hotel room. You haven't been pooping this whole time, have you? <laughs> There's no way to know for sure. Ah! <laughs>